0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Always So Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. This is Dr. Mario Castan, and I pray that this episode finds you well today. All right, joining me on the show for the second time is my friend Sarah Denny, who was on the show probably three years ago. I think it's episode five, somewhere thereabouts, where we talked about women's health. She was at the very beginning of her dissertation process, and here we are three years later at the very end of this epic research study that she's doing. So today we basically dive into this question of what if Margaret Sanger and John Paul II had a cup of coffee and talked. And talked about human freedom, human sexuality, contraception, abortion, everything of the like. So in today's episode, we get deep into that discussion. We go deep into Margaret Sanger's personal history, what led her to start the Planned Parenthood and all the the women's rights activities that she did, where her heart was motivated out of and where her errors were as well. And then following that up with John Paul II's wonderful philosophy on the human person and on human freedom, being able to give the appropriate answers to the questions that Margaret Sanger was posing. This episode I know is long, but we get depth into great depth uh, and wonderful conversation as Sarah just beautifully shares her heart and her journey and just the wealth of information that she has. So I don't want to keep you much longer, dear listeners, but when the show is done, please check us out at Facebook or Instagram at Dr. Mari Sakas. If you have any questions or comments, please leave them there. And let's get into this conversation with Sarah Denny. Sarah Denny, welcome back to the Always Hope so Podcast. How are you doing?
1: <laughs> doing great. Doing really well. Thank you for asking. I'm happy to be
2: back.
0: Yeah, well, I'm, I'm grateful. So I, I have to admit, uh, as we were leading up to, to this interview, I went back and listened to um, my interview with you from three years ago, if you believe that now. That was October. I'm almost
1: scared to listen to the interview. <laughs> I,
0: I, I I was, and 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 rightfully so. It was... Uh, <laughs> you were great. I just have to say, you were fantastic. Oh. I was boring and flat no. and terrified the whole time I mean it just it was really a, a testament to like how far I've gone grown in, the, in these three years that I've been doing the show but man listening to it I was like I had no personality I had it's like <laughs> I could have been, I could have been like a robot, you know, like like an algorithm, like speaking to you. <laughs> and
1: then ask me the next question yeah, exactly. in a robotic tone, you know? <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Was that Siri? Was that a Siri? Was that Alexa? <laughs> what, what? Ask the next question. <laughs> so bad! Oh my
1: gosh. Oh my gosh! No! <laughs> uh, you no! <know>, the- <laughs> I though I was thinking about it, and I was like, "Oh man, I'm almost afraid to go listen to it because there's been so much in the last three years since we last recorded." That I feel like I've learned, and like you and I have shared before this, like it's just such a humbling experience. Because as we've said often, the more I learn, the more I feel like, wow,
0: I don't know. I do
1: not know anything. (laughs) That's
0: exactly right. Yes, yes,
1: you know. So
0: yeah, I agree, and 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 like I said, uh, I actually encourage people to listen to it for sure, just because the information is great. We spent the the episode talking about um, women's health, and, and specifically. The effect that artificial birth control has on a woman's body, and and it was mm-hmm. a great conversation to learn about what those effects are, particularly with adolescent women, um, because that was part of your dissertation. And that was yes, near the beginning absolutely. as of you're starting your, your your writing, and here we are now three years later, near the end. <sighs> which is amazing to think. Congratulations. It does
1: exist. The end does exist. Thank you very much. I'm grateful.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I'm sure you can go back to listen to it and probably be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Oh, that wasn't said right. Oh, I know more. Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't matter. And
1: You're right. It doesn't. It's like the artist there, right? Any artist I know or any paintings I've done, mm-hmm. you're the one that looks at it and you see all the things you're like, oh, I wish I could do that and fix that. But the greatest advice Many people have had advice for me in this dissertation process. And I would say one of the better things that makes much more sense now than it did in the beginning is a finished dissertation is better than a perfect dissertation. <laughs> and I think because one exists and the other does not. That's
0: understand. exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. It, done mm-hmm. is better than 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 perfect. And that is 100% true, whether it's your dissertation or honestly, just about most things in life. Like Yes, I agree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so that's why even like it wasn't perfect at the beginning. But I think the show's gotten better, and I hope, people, <laughs> I hope I've gotten better as a host, a little bit more engaging. <laughs> oh, I'm Thank sure. You, <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of that little ramble or ranting. Let's get into this. So, Sarah, thanks okay. so much again for coming back and just sharing more of what you have learned over the last three years. And like we said then, and, and like we're talking about now, I mean, the topic that you're speaking about is is really... Um, it. it I would say cutting edge in many ways. I mean, you're really trying to push the envelope on discussions that I think need to happen. And so what, if I understand correctly, of the many things you're doing, but one of the things you're trying to do dissertation is trying to say, okay, how do we listen to what Margaret Sanger is saying about women's health and understanding the cultural context of where her ideas were coming from and where her her proposed solutions to the problems that she was seeing. And then saying, okay, where was that right? Where was that wrong? But then mm-hmm. saying, okay, here's JP two on on the other end of this, what coming in after she dies, and starts to write about um you know women and 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 feminism and giving an answer, fuller answer to many of the problems that that she's articulating. So what we're gonna be doing today is I, I just I think you've said this best, so I'm sorry to rip you off. But it's like if I would write a popular book, This is for you, you said if JP two and Margaret Sanger had a cup of coffee, what would they be talking about? And, yes. and I think that's the the attitude that we're trying to Inculcate here in this episode. Um, So I think the first place to start really is who is Margaret Sanger. (laughs) (laughs) That is the question. (laughs) And and uh, what what role has she played in our understanding of femininity here in 2021?
1: Yeah, great question. So you know, I think um, what's interesting is since the last time that you and I have recorded three years ago is. Her life's work has come into question Hmm. in ways that I didn't know were going to happen when I first started this project. So initially, if you were to ask me quite simply, why would you include Margaret Sanger in this conversation? I would say, well, she's the founder of Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. and Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of sex education in the United States and internationally And so, um, but but I'll admit I I wanted to know who she was because you know, I, I go on different trips, I hear different things, and I typically would get the same few sound bites on repeat. And I wanted to know why did she feel so strongly as she did about women's issues, specifically about abortion and birth control? And so, you know, actually a year ago in July. Um, the Planned Parenthood in New York, they decided to, in a sense, disavow themselves from her. Um, she began the first Planned Parenthood clinic in New York City. And uh, I want to say it was 1916. It could be 1918. I'm sorry, the dates are blurring, That's but um, about a century ago. And so to hear them say, you know, we want to put a distance between ourselves and our founder because of the political issues that were arising with, you know, good reason of especially Black Lives Matter and different things. Um, What I found interesting was that they were doing that without necessarily uh, facing sort of the things that the other multiple issues that we could bring up about planned Parenthood services. Um, But to not get too far away just yet into that, I I do want to say, so Margaret Sanger, if you ask me who she is, I would say she's not a villain. Uh, You know, some would want to cast her as that. And if you do, you could do this with any person in history. If you want to put her in a vacuum and box her into one space We can focus on the fact that she was eugenicist, and she was, I'm not going to deny that. Uh, We could focus on the fact that she did have some racist tendencies, and she did, but I would actually argue, having read from the primary sources some of the things that she wrote, I don't think it is as extreme as maybe some people have claimed it to be, and we could elaborate on that later if you want. Um, But if you really want to go to the heart of the issue, I would say that Margaret Singer was a woman who desired to help women, and she was living in a particular way in a time that was difficult for women, specifically in the area of motherhood. Mm -hmm. And so she felt very strongly about it on a personal level. She herself was married and had children and her personal life was uh, colorful to say the least. And we could talk about that if you wanted, but she was also a nurse. And so training as a nurse and then getting married and then having three children, when her husband, who was originally an architect, Um, decided that he wanted to be an artist and was not necessarily then consistently providing financially for the family. And this is in like 1905 to 1915, let's say, Um, she struggled with that. And she had to go back to work as a woman because she needed to help provide for the family. And in her work as a nurse, she actually worked on the Lower East Side of New York City. So the population that she was working with was an impoverished population. It was largely Irish immigrants, you know, different immigrants at that time. And if you read the, the reality of what they were living, I mean, the men are going to work during the day. The women are keeping the kids at home, sending them to school, making lunches. The husband comes home for lunch. She makes the lunch, keeps the house, whatever. Husband comes home and then probably she has to go work a night shift just for them to be able to pay for their children, right? right? And at that time, paternal mortality was a big thing, right? To, today, to be quite honest, in global maternal mortality, so a woman who dies because of pregnancy or childbirth, mm-hmm. the United States of America, it developed countries, it's 1% mm-hmm. of the entire statistic, right? But 100 years ago, it wasn't 1%, especially between the years of 1900 to 1930, because we didn't have a lot of the knowledge that we now have. Women did die during childbirth.
0: How high was um, it back then? Do you remember?
1: I can't remember, unfortunately, the statistic, but I can say, I read it earlier. It was something... I don't want to put it on air and not be sure. I can't okay. remember where I wrote it, but it was of every 1,000 women. I want to say it was at least like 16, 17. Wow. And then, you know, one in, is another one in every 100 children. Like they would die. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a high, it's a high number. I say it, forgive me for not being able to quote it, but I can sure. say that it's so stark of a contrast to today that even though I claim the number, I still think when I talk with people, it's very hard for them to imagine how difficult that was. So either a mother was mourning the loss of her child who died in childbirth or the woman was mourning the loss of her child who they couldn't give it adequate nutrition. And a lot of children would die within the first one or two years of life. Um, or and then you go further than that is then these women
0: or uh, women or are her not husband, crazy. Or her husband was mourning the loss of his wife. Um, and now exactly. To to or
1: she's children. dying and yeah. then he's trying to find a way to then support his right. children and probably getting remarried, whatever that might be. Um, but if they didn't die, these women, if they didn't die, there's also the very real struggle of like the women were exhausted, mm-hmm. not because they're lazy or because they're weak, but because the way, right. So we have the industrial revolution, like we have all these opportunities that are sort of growing. We're, we're finding out things about health in just enough ways that we can start to prolong, right. The, the lifespan of the individual, but what that does. I mean, if you just do the mathematical, then of course it looks different than when we didn't know these things. And so many people were dying from these, What we would think just very natural things like childbirth and just childhood, you know? Um, So she was responding to that. And I would say there was a particular situation that she saw where there was a young woman and she calls the woman Sadie Sachs. It's debated about whether or not it was one situation or if she kind of put those stories together for kind of her stump speech, as she would call it. But she and a doctor had been called to this particular house in the lower East side to help this woman who was suffering severely because she and had in New York? induced. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. It's in New York city. Um, because she had tried to perform an abortion on herself. Mm. She did lose the baby. Um, and this woman, you can mm-hmm. imagine when one does that to oneself, she was almost losing her own life. They were able to save her. And before the doctor left, the doctor looked at her and said, don't let this happen again. Now, between you and me and all the listeners, what does that mean when a doctor looks at a woman and says, don't let this happen again, or don't get, as they used to say, don't get in this way again, mm-hmm. aka don't get pregnant.
0: Don't get pregnant, right.
1: right. Right? Okay. So what is a woman supposed to do? At a time, when we have to realize the only forms of birth control at that time would have been condoms mm-hmm. or withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Now, were they starting to use spermicides? Sure, but that was super sketchy because- you just imagine the application of that and the chemicals they're using, and how many different people are trying to make that right so so, what Margaret is seeing is that this woman is looking at the doctor, pleading him actually, great idea, doc, like I would love to not have another child because she herself felt like, see, this is a thing for Margaret that she would argue. she actually did not believe in abortion, which is something that most people do not understand
0: initially she wrote initially right
1: initially yeah. she did at times in her I will say in all my readings, she in time said something about, you know, in her education, like sex education for her at times, she would say, you can take a laxative to sort of help your cycle along. Mm -hmm. Um, But even when women would conceive, she would say to please come to the Margaret Singer Research Bureau, to please come to social agencies. Like her first initial response wasn't abortion. Mm -hmm. I couldn't find that in her work. Um, She actually said that, the abortion was a sign that civilization was failing women. And that a woman, she said, a woman pithed to the sake of almost killing herself. That?
0: That's unbelievable. Yes. I mean, like, yes. that's, like that's not she what you hear. She called women martyrs. Obviously. That's not what you hear, of course. No, it's, not. Margaret Sanger. it's and, not. And for right reason. Listen, I know we're, I know people might feel uncomfortable even by the fact that we're talking about Oh my gosh, I'm this. just
1: making so many people uncomfortable. Yeah. Because
0: you can't deny what Planned Parenthood is. And, and, Absolutely. And you can't deny that she's the founder of it. And so Planned Parenthood Absolutely. is the nation's largest... Abortion provider, and yes. provider of contraceptive services to women as well. And and also cultural tone center when it comes to these things. Absolutely lobbyists, all this stuff. And so absolutely so it's undeniable, like, you know, the evils that that come from from that organization and mm-hmm. to say, okay, well, she's the founder of it. And so you know. It's, it's staggering for me to hear you say that like I know that she's staggering
1: for me that she yeah. wouldn't
0: think of abortion you know initially or um yeah so she's a nurse a woman there in the 1915s uh responding seeing a problem okay mm-hmm. and the problem is uh that there's a lot of poverty there is a high mortality rate of of women during uh childbirth during ch- pregnancy and childbirth there's a high rate of um of Infant death and death in young childhood, mm-hmm. and so rec- seeing all of this, she wants to help, and she wants to. Yes. She's motivated primarily by by seeing that there's a problem here, and we have to try to be able to offer some type of solution to the problem. Yes, is that right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: So, again, what 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 was her proposed solution then to the problem?
1: Well, then to circle back to that story- Because I, think, same,
0: interrupt you, because I think most people yeah. would look at that and say, well, yeah, that, that is a problem. There are problems that are there. We don't want people, we don't right. want women dying because of childbirth. We don't want babies dying um, because of um, lack of nutrition. Uh, those aren't things that I think anybody w- would want. And so- Exactly. What is her proposed solution then to that?
1: So her proposed solution, so to finish that story from earlier, she, mm-hmm. she witnessed this doctor tell Thank this you. woman, you know, basically- what she says the doctor looked at this woman and said tell your husband to sleep on the roof and all of us can hear that i mean as a woman i want to be like there's a lot of things i want to say yeah, right yeah 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 because are you are you kidding me and think about this as so this is the thing you need just more cultural context is legally speaking there were these things called coverture and consortium which had to do with the fact that a woman had a legal right to a man's protection if she was married to him But then it also had to do with that there were specific rights understood within marriage, which included the sexual act. But what it could come out as is that if a woman said no to a man within the sexual act, it could be grounds for divorce. And if he divorces her, she could lose all legal rights to her protection. And then as a woman in the early 20th century, what do you do? And if you have children with this man and you lose all rights to your children, What do you do right now? This man, for instance, in this story, married to this young woman, it's not to say that that was him, but it's to say that women felt in many ways at a loss. So when this doctor leaves, this woman, Sadie looks at Margaret Sanger and begs her. She says, Margaret, you're a woman. Like you understand, like she's begging her, please tell me what do I do to avoid having more children? Mm. And Margaret was overwhelmed by the fact that she was like, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Even as a nurse, which then began this journey. So she basically has this like internal, just conviction of like, something has to change. We have to start somewhere else like this is women are in dire straits and I want to help them. And just so you know, she, she did have a background of political activism. Her father was a
0: socialist, mm-hmm.
1: cannot downplay that that right. hugely influences her right in her intellectual yeah.
0: development. And she's a socialist um, also, isn't she?
1: Yes. Yeah, so she was a socialist and it got to the point for her sort of at the same time as this happening. So she and her husband, they would go to the Greenwich Village, like these different circles of people to, you know, the free love movement or socialism or all these other things. And, and she you can see in her heart she wanted to work for the good for people. So she would even help organize care for the children of those who were going on labor strikes, who were trying to get wages to be able to provide for their families. And so, you know, but she started to realize all these things were coming to a head for her. And she was saying, but if you get just a few more pennies in your wages, but you still have more children, she just was like, I don't understand how we're supposed to stop the problem. And the problem must be that we need to somehow help women to stop having so many children. So for her, I'll say this is the key to understand for Margaret Sanger, because I'm not here to canonize her by any means. Yeah, right. I want to give I want to give room for I think people need to understand that Margaret Sanger was doing the best she could with what she had in a sense of as a nurse seeing a need. Um, But I also think the underpinning of that is to see that. Women still to this day in the 21st century are asking the very same question having to do with how does my role as a woman. My role then as a wife, my role as a mother in all these different ways and my desire for freedom, how do all of these things connect? And I think like we've talked about, even there's a space in the church for that conversation because it's not an extreme of have 20 kids or an extreme of children are evil. And it's trying to find that balance. So for Margaret, though, her beginning was we need to educate women on the nature of their bodies. So. That's a huge point. Besides the legal law that I just shared between men and women within their marriages, there's also something that people, most people have no idea about. I didn't until I started researching this, but a man by the name of Anthony Comstock in the 1870s was the postmaster general and he was a Puritan. And so what he desired was that nothing would go through the mail that would be information related to specific things Mm -hmm. like pornography, Mm -hmm. for instance. And I think we could all agree on a social, you know, logical level that that would be a good thing. But for him, what he then, he decided to change the law to then include that anything related to any prevention of conception or anything related to abortion should also then be included in that law so that it cannot be spread through the mail. So when that funnels down into real life, everyday experience, what does that mean? That means that these women had no access to the biological knowledge about their own bodies because even the biological diagram related to a woman, so including me, my own anatomy could be used then in some way as contraception. And so it was considered pornographic. And so women were prevented from even having that knowledge. And so doctors were afraid. They were genuinely afraid to give women this information because they could be arrested for it because it was considered illegal. Which to me is stunning. It I'm is, like mic drop. Jeez. it, 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 is.
0: Sorry. <laughs> it is. It is. It, and I man, I guess the, the challenge is, you know, when we think about today's day and age, it's like any conversation about sex, though, it almost seems like it's pornographic. And and it yes, almost there's, a huge there's, struggle there's truth that. in this. I mean, this is what's yeah, so hard yeah. about it. Cause like even I did an episode here recently with with Jennifer and, and with Damon Cudahy where we answered questions from listeners of the show to be able to field questions about sexual intimacy and in marriage. And so we got, I don't know, 25, 30 questions or something that we tried to tackle. And we answered them, me as a marriage therapist, Jennifer as a moral theologian, and Damon as, a, as, a, mm-hmm. as an OBGYN, to be able to talk about and answer these questions in a way that's with discretion but with truth. And I think we did a good job with, with the episode. But the reason I felt inclined to do that is because the, a lot of the questions that were asked aren't questions that you can just Google search. I mean, because the information mm. that you'll get or the images or the videos or stuff that you'll get will in fact be something that is not,
2: yes. you know, in line with no, the church's teaching.
0: And so I, I will say that tension that you spoke about still exists to this day of like, how mm-hmm. do people, women, men, get honest answers that aren't leading one towards doing something that is sinful? And that yes, right there is really that. difficult when it comes to this conversation about sexuality and knowledge of sexuality. And I do my mm-hmm. research; I read a lot of books um, about counseling and, and books about sexual intimacy, or, or articles about sexual intimacy. And I can assure you that almost none of them are 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 communicating sexual, you know, embraces <laughs> in a way that is, you know,
3: <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah, in conformity
0: with what the church pur- purports. But then you go to the you read the church stuff and with respect some of it's so darn lofty that you're like mm-hmm. where where is this i mean like this is a, this this experience that you're speaking about is not at all like within the context of what i'm going through and and so yes. so this kind of boots on the ground need answer is 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 absolutely needed um to 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 give some context to this so so i can understand you know then recognizing that if she's coming from Political activism. If she has her own background in nursing and with her own knowledge about um, women, and recognizing that that there's a real problem here, and so the answer is education. How do we educate women's body?
1: Right, and so women about I think excuse me. Exactly, exactly. And so just just for the listeners to know, too, the end goal of this entire project uh, for me, what my goal is, is to argue that. Something called fertility awareness models. So for instance, Creighton model or FEM or Symptothermal or a Billings ovulation method, those things, educating women in how their bodies naturally cycle, how their fertilities function is an option that not only serves the medical community as a form of preventative medicine. And we can get more in detail of that later if you want, but it also for the church can serve as this remote vocation preparation. But ultimately where I land my plane is that I want to argue that then that means that we have a third way possible for sex education. Mm -hmm. And to give the listeners like kind of the scope of that, predominantly people look at it as there's two ways of sex education. One of them is comprehensive sex education, which in terms of a business model, Planned Parenthood, genius. They have got it made. And and just for the listeners to know, like in 2019, they introduced a, a bot on their website called Roo. And so literally you could pause this podcast. and go, No, don't do this. I don't recommend it. You've learned what they think, but you can ask any question you want on this bot. And it's encouraged because it, and it literally says, you read the description, it's saying, this is a space and it's directed towards adolescents, right? This is a space for all those questions that you don't feel comfortable enough asking someone else. And what it is doing is, can we agree that there's there is a need within the curiosity that adolescents naturally have to answer questions. Yes. Unfortunately, it's, it's part of the, the larger struggle within the culture, right? That that is such a detached impersonal way to receive an answer. And then obviously the answer is going to be based upon whoever's on the other side, typing out that answer prepared through the bot, you know, to respond. Right. Um, but the other than, so that's one model is this comprehensive sex education where we, We basically give you all the information possible and they say it's in the name of science. So there's a large component of sexually transmitted infections and diseases. Here's all your options of contraception and birth control. Interestingly enough, I think it has shown itself in its weakness is that there's also a huge emphasis on needing to define consent, which I think shows, Hey, as a culture, if we are so unable to see from one other individual in a moment whether or not they are consenting to something i think we're missing stuff several steps ahead um, but so that's or as if mutual consent
0: is is all that makes it a moral act
1: exactly which is the other piece yes yeah. so- as long as you're sober well as long as you're not joking, capable you know yeah. what i mean like and that's that's really is the they define it so much to mm-hmm. the nth degree that you're like, wow, we're, we're missing something about common human Correct. interaction Correct. And, and relationship.
0: Which we appreciate, no, certainly, think, that there is that where no, no one's encouraging right. violence, no, or, no, you know, forced no, sexual absolutely behavior. Absolutely not. Not at all, obviously. Yes. But I'm yes. saying that, no, that think, but I'm grateful that we draw the line somewhere. But yes. as soon as you draw the line somewhere, absolutely. you have to define why you're drawing the line there and then see if that principle applies. So I, I, I still yes. think that there's. Thank more you so much for that clarification. That could be said in terms of. Not just looking at it so one hand we have comprehensive sex education right. what's the other the other version. on the
1: other hand we have the abstinence only option of sex education right. meaning and most people consider it this way as you're in a classroom and literally all you learn is don't have sex okay clap clap everyone goes on so there is this battle is a a vehement battle especially in the united states but it's it's international i mean we're not the only people on the planet right, right. But between these two systems, either we're going to educate our children on everything there is to know about the sexual act and ways to prevent pregnancy, or just don't have sex. And um, there's there's a book I use in my research that I thought was very interesting. That a sociologist named Kristen Luger wrote in response to research she did through various communities in the states, and she did it over a number of years and. She made the point that I thought was really important. And she said, there's a debate going on within this country. And she argued that it's even running the political sphere and elections. She said, but both sides want to argue that their way of sex education is more effective. Mm -hmm. She as a sociologist argues that actually effective
0: by defined being defined by defined
1: by they are having a low number of unplanned pregnancies pregnancies. and unintended Mm -hmm. pregnancies. perfect way to say it. Um, And she says that they both uh, measure those things differently in ways that look rather, you know, that reflect rather well back Mm -hmm. upon how they're offering it. But she says, "I, I think both can offer something good, like comprehensive sex education does offer this sort of, at least there's information related to the science that they should know about the transmission of infection and things like that. And she says, but it's hard to find people who are as passionate about their beliefs as those who are arguing for abstinence only. And there's something to be said that's good about that. Mm -hmm. And yet she says, still, this is a debate that is largely about values, not facts.
3: She's like, and unless we come
1: to it, she said, so why don't, so her conclusion is, why don't we just tell adolescents, men and women, that we actually aren't having a debate about facts we're having a debate about values, and we vehemently disagree on values, specifically the value of woman, her role within marriage, family, and sex.
0: Yeah, I, and motherhood. It, but because I, I mean, I wish we could say that, and that would be a much more sincere and open way of having this discussion. Because even with the the, the comprehensive side, you know, they claim science to be value free, and I hear all this, of course, that being a counselor, and I know where all it comes from. And I'm like, we're value free? No, you're not. You have a value. Mm-hmm. And then that value will influence your conversations in, in the way yes. that you skew things, whether it's in counseling or, or anything of that matter. And that's okay to then have that conversation about values and then saying, okay, well, which values? Now we can have some some dialogue or debate about that and then let the science kind of flow underneath that. So. I think this is, this is beautiful in terms of opera, you know, looking at both and then you say you're landing on a, on a third way, but l- l- let's go back quickly to, to, to Margaret Sanger here and then saying, okay, so she saw the problem and her solution. It wasn't comprehensive as it is now. I'd say comprehensive as it is now back in the the early teens and twenties, but she uh, was moving not. in this direction. She was, she was arguing for knowledge about the, 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 the body, um, did that include this type of fertility awareness? I mean, the birth control pill doesn't come out until the 50s. So we're, we're, right. we're 40 years before the pill. But is she hardly is she advocating for for contraception? Is is that the solution that she sees as the, as is that the solution she sees to the problem of unplanned pregnancy in in women's high mortality rate in pregnancy? Yes.
1: Okay. So perfect segue back to what I wanted to get back to the point is that in the beginning that was her solution, but her solution, I would say, was quickly supplanted by her deeper desire for what she would call the magic pill. Okay. So she went. She and she admits this. She said, "I started on this emotional plane, and I need to move this to scientific argument." So she started writing these things with statistics about women's desire for freedom, about the history of infanticide and herbs women would take an abortion mm-hmm. for thousands of years, and even you know, exposure of your child to the elements and leaving your child to die. She's like, women desire freedom. Here's the the statistics on this and that and the other thing related to maternal mortality or child mortality. And what she was trying to do was to get scientists on her team because there were no reliable contraceptives, right? And her big argument, interestingly enough, so you can see, if if you were to ask me, Mario, for a verse, actually for a quote, but I'm just picking it because- it happens to also be a scripture verse, and to me, it just proves the point that describes my experience and the research of this dissertation. It would be this Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you.
3: Mm.
1: Mm. A direct result of the fall is such that mm-hmm. a very good desire, woman's desire for man, right. is twisted, and a very good position. I shouldn't say position, but opportunity, invitation for Mm -hmm. relationship with woman, that man also naturally desires that is good, is also twisted. And it goes from this place of woman desires to receive to then the grasping and then man desires to Mm -hmm. give of himself and his temptation becomes to possess, to dominate, Mm -hmm. right? And so for Margaret, her argument was, no, the, the ways that we know about, such as condoms and withdrawal, that depends on the man absolutely not mm-hmm. women need an equal playing field we
0: can't depend and on if the i'm gonna
1: get them to, an equal playing that. field exactly yeah. we can't depend on the man and she she didn't well, then that, that, that. i'm
0: sorry to interrupt you but that would that no, to me true. then kind of leads to give some answers to why why women why female birth control you know like it seems like the yeah the, i hate to say i'm sorry to be crass no, about, look the but like, obvious the, part, the, the obvious answer, all the time the you know it, it's the the, the, the <laughs> Hardware is a little bit simpler in the guy side. Let me just—that's what I'm trying to get at. You know, yeah, y'all are L- fertile all the time. Exactly. Period. So it's it rather seems simple. like you're creating some type of pill that would that would solve that. And I'm not—I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I—I so so I, I don't know if I can say that with 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 great confidence. But
1: well, you do know that the few times they've done those those research those like attempts, like men drop out of the studies really fast. That's why I don't
2: let
0: them go anywhere. Yeah. Okay. Men don't like the
1: side effects.
0: Yeah. Sorry. It's it's just that's true. No, but it's so, but, but so even with that though, but what you're saying is that there's a deeper, whether men, the the deeper element is that she was really arguing for women to have complete control of their bodies and their fertility.
1: Right. Out of, out of
0: a fear, not out of a liberation, but you're saying it's out of, we can't trust men to do their job. Right. And so we need to, control ourselves is that is that the attitude that i'm well i
1: wouldn't yes but i wouldn't throw out the liberation piece it's it's because the liberation piece i would actually come back to that's where freedom now everything we're talking about i just need the listeners to hear me say there are many things going on around her in the culture and in the scientific community and in sex education this isn't the only thing happening right but i my argument is that this is one of the, the the stronger currents um, but her desire ultimately became for a woman's ultimate freedom. And in her mind, a woman's reproductive freedom would be her ultimate freedom because, just think about it from her perspective, legally, in terms of civil law, a woman owes her body to her husband if she is married to him. And if she says no, mm-hmm. he can divorce her and she loses all rights to his protection. From her perspective, now, and I would argue this is most people even present day, we can speak praise God, the gift of our faith. Okay, great. I understand the delineation in many ways between the Catholic faith and between other faiths. I know I don't know everything, but from her perspective, it all sort of funnels into one umbrella and there is religion and there is Catholicism. There is the effect of Anthony Comstock and those Comstock laws, which Mm -hmm. are called obscenity laws, right? That puts that whole piece of potential for motherhood in the pornographic sort of wording. And she's really upset about that for Honestly, good reasons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so she is seeing this also religious undertone that, in her mind, in one way, she's like coming strong because she gets more and more upset about this. She believes that morality, these are her words, but she just thinks it's a bunch of old men mm-hmm. who just have medieval understandings of women in their bodies. And all they're there to do is to put women under their thumb, but also. And here's the thing, Mario, and I can say in conversations I've had sometimes with different people. But isn't that the argument? Not, I'm
0: sorry to interrupt you, but isn't that the argument still even today? Like 100 years later? That's it's, what I was actually about to say. It's, yes. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. No, no. I know. All the light bulbs are going off, right? Yes. It, that is the argument still today. But interestingly enough, even within the church, Mario, I think there is a lack of education sometimes that people can use. So, like even Thomas Aquinas, different writings that he had, you can take the marital debt mm-hmm. out of context. And people still, I've heard them argue as if there's this understanding of marital debt in the same way that a woman's submission, which is not right. what I would argue the church or John Paul II actually teaches. There's a mutual submission, but it's not this thing that, oh, yeah, a woman just owes her body to her husband as long as she is married to him. Because what John Paul II, this is the key, and we can get to this later, but the key for him is that philosophically, metaphysically, man and woman are equal. biologically. Man and woman, when he says inequality, he doesn't mean less than, but he means different. Mm -hmm,
3: mm -hmm. And if
1: you want to honor a woman's freedom, you must honor her in her subjectivity, her personhood, which includes her biological difference. Now I'm jumping ahead. I don't want to go too far. but, 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 But Margaret Sanger, that's what she's like looking at the civil law. And she's saying, you're demanding that a woman submit to a husband no matter how she feels, no matter if she knows she's overwhelmed and can't have more children. And you church are also telling her, you must submit to your husband, no matter how you feel, because it's God is calling you to do this and this is your role as a woman. Right. And she was angry to say the least.
0: Well, I mean, for right reason, we we know obviously mm-hmm. that, that that is um that, that's wrong. I mean, there's just no other way of saying it. That of course that yeah. type of belief system and and I hear that even now, of course, is 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 just wrong. It's not it's not it's not uh a common union anymore when you're speaking about right. that type of submissiveness at that level. But I mm-hmm. guess back to the question why we're even talking about this what when light bulbs that are going off in my brain right now are mm-hmm. so much of what you're saying these I' want to say tropes, but I guess I don't want to be pejorative with it, but but they are. it's like you you hear common statements that are said you know among proponents of abortion or contraception or or, or planned Parenthood mm-hmm. supporters. And all of them center around these themes that you're speaking about: mm-hmm. uh, women's freedom, um, you know, uh, e- e- equality. Um, not understanding that equality is 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 actually at the expense of the sexual difference, but that's besides the point. It's not actually because it's we. Well, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. But but a lot of these things you're, you're speaking about, like not being under submission, it. Uh, this is why we have to, whether we want to villainize Margaret Sanger or not, or, or want to. Um, uh, you know, we have to understand her, the effect of those thoughts on our culture in 2021. I mean, like mm-hmm. those things that you're speaking about find their root there. And of course we can go back even further philosophically where her thoughts come from yes. and, and her approach, yes. but, but at least in terms of one person being, a, 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 a you know, marketeer or whatever, you know, kind of one who speaks about these things <laughs> and promotes this and advocates for this, this message and having these quick tropes. Those, those things are still used today. Those fears are still so, dredged yeah. up and, and those, those comments are still being made now. So again, this is where nuance is so important and where I think mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger's lack of nuance is, is what has caused much of the problem today in that we're looking at saying, okay, there is a real problem here, but, but we, anytime, it, it's staggering to me, any anytime we, we find a simple solution to a problem we always create a whole host of other problems because we fail to take mm-hmm. the full thing in, in, into context. And so saying that, uh, certainly women needing to know about their bodies, absolutely, there being community and real mutual respect uh, among men and women, for sure. But that that doesn't mean that we should be promoting, as Catholics, we would say we shouldn't be promoting contraception. We talked about, obviously, all the ill effects that that has on women in, in our last interview that you and I did. Mm-hmm. Um and so the other way what are other ways of being able to do that um,
1: and I think that's the key right now in what you're asking and just to let the listeners know is not in, in the context of history though has she was this part of the conversation the 1900s and the 1920s no fertility awareness in the way that we know it now did not exist, did not exist. right and so the the Catholic Church did publish in December 31st 1930 Cassitunubi where it it You know, again, it confirmed the teaching that we do not believe in contraception. Shortly thereafter, um, right before that, the Lambeth Conference happened where the Anglican bishops, that was the first time that the Christian, some Christian denomination, it was that particular one that said in particular, specific situations that perhaps it can be used if couples feel that they morally must, right? And that's when the floodgates sort of opened. But shortly thereafter, in 1932, um, a, a doctor in Chicago actually published the findings of two separate physicians, one from Austria, one from Japan, who separately had found and confirmed the same things. Now, granted, fertility, they found things from 3000 BC in Egypt related to fertility and infertility. But actually knowing the science of it, there's a finding in 1500s and one finding over here in the 1600s, like a slow development. And then starting to put it together in this time period of the late 1920s, these two doctors separately confirm, okay, a menstrual event, so a, a bleeding event, a period that a woman has, confirms that about 12 to 16 days prior to that, she ovulated, meaning she released an oocyte from one of her ovaries, right, her gamete. Um, and this cycle is a part of a woman's health, it's a part of her fertility, it's a part of her natural functioning. The thing that they were attempting to do. And this is what people know as the rhythm method, Mm -hmm. right? What they were attempting to do is say, hey, science can work for us in such a way that we can know with some sort of accuracy when a woman ovulates. Two important points to know. Number one, the fertility awareness we're talking about today is not the same thing as the rhythm method, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that we should so quickly with disdain speak about the rhythm method, because in many ways, the rhythm, the rhythm method was revolutionary. And what I mean by that is my second point. So Margaret Tanger is going along trying to find the ideal contraception. And for her, her whole argument shifted from education to, I want this magic pill. I want women to have this thing that's easy, that no matter how poor they are, forget even needing to teach them. Honestly, she's just like, give them the pill. Hmm. Interestingly enough, she thought it would come from Russia because she believed Russia as an atheistic state would be the one to find it because they were unhindered by any form of religion. And from her perception and experience, she thought, you know, religion, she considered the Roman Catholic church to be the greatest enemy because they were very good at writing letters and getting your politicians to vote against these laws changing. Um, And we'll, get more into that later if we want, but when you look at the history and you hear when the rhythm method comes out, that was the first time. So remember that this doctor was a Catholic physician was writing that there was now a way that science could be used to help couples space their children that did not go against church teaching because it wasn't contraception. So hear me when I say listeners, there's a big umbrella called birth control. Underneath that umbrella is both contraception and fertility awareness models. Contraception is done in such a way that you somehow manipulate chemically or with some sort of device or a condom or things like that. You were intentionally doing it and so that you prevent the meeting of the sperm and the egg, right? Whereas the fertility awareness models is in recognition of a woman's body and her cycle, her fertility as it naturally functions, the rhythm of her like her body's language, a couple decides through their freedom and their free will to choose, oh, if a woman at this time is infertile, we would not have a child if we engage in the sexual act. And if she's fertile, we would have a child. So there's this piece of responsibility and that's developed and especially in this past century, especially the work of John Paul II. But for Margaret Sanger, just to, to have you hear what I'm saying is this is when birth control becomes more than just contraception. Mm-hmm. This is when birth control, from her perspective, she's like, oh my gosh, the church is starting to agree with me in the sense that perhaps they now think that it's not that sex is just for reproduction, right? But that. Those other ends that the church has mentioned in things like Kasekinumi, what it refers to in that document as the secondary ends, you know, it talks about things like for the mitigation against concupiscence and things like that. She's saying, oh my gosh, then maybe this means if the church is saying that then a couple could have sex and not necessarily intend a child because a couple knows in some way their fertility, then that must mean that the church actually thinks that sex is a good thing in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And that, I don't know how to like, emphasize that more but that is revolutionary that for her was huge she actually told them that it should also be illegal in court when she was in court because she was fighting this case right this comstock act until 1936 when the law was changed but she was fighting and she even said because she was like it's basically the same thing it's just a different way of doing it you're also preventing pregnancy so that should be illegal like she believed it was a good idea which is still
0: used against you know fertility oh my gosh
1: process. absolutely yeah. we can get to why it's different later but oh, yeah but I will say so the, the key though where she was right though, and this is the where she was right, is the rhythm method, the scientific accuracy was off. It's based upon a formula that, that would require that every single woman in her cycle is completely consistent for her entire life. And as we have learned, as these you know methods have been bettered through research and time, <laughs> stress, you know, environmental factors, so many things, what you put in your body, what you eat can affect a woman's cycle so that the rhythm method, it does it's not applicable for every single woman. And so some women, it did work and it right. could work because their cycles were so regular, but for others it wasn't.
0: Right. But rec, but she recognized at least that here's the church attempting to do to to, yes. to to work in this to recognize okay there is fertility awareness education is what's important even if that education is a little bit off which we know it's been sure letters developed. to her
1: friends about it at, at, she was so excited yeah, yeah.
0: At, at ex, that's beautiful you know that she wrote letters to her friends about it you know but that she that she recognized at least that there was something there but for her it still wasn't enough the answer was going to be the magic pill yes and and then when you know contraception becomes uh, legal. It's invented and it becomes legal. It's only a matter of years before abortion comes because abortion now is just viewed as as another form of contraception. Absolutely, you know, pregnancy is just a product of conception. It's not a a life yet, and so we have to, you know, get rid of it because the contraception failed. Um, Right, and because did she support that? I mean, I guess that's what that's what I We know that now, but I mean, did, did she? So what do you hear about these things about, like, I mean, because you hear about this stuff about her being a eugenicist, like you said earlier. Yeah, um, that
3: is,
1: she has some really hard things to read, So, as in it, that they're
0: harsh in her book, yeah. So, I mean, so if she wasn't outright racist, is it not that she, so when you think of eugenics, isn't that is she saying that each race should have the right to choose its best members? So in her, zone, or is she still saying that whites are better than blacks and everybody else?
1: See, <laughs> okay, when I say this, gosh. She, the, this is what it's a hard conversation to have in the sense that the language and the way that we speak of it today, to me, when I read what she writes, it's like, you can't cookie cutter, like, let me cut and paste into the 21st century, 2021, what she was saying. Her understanding of eugenicists, you have to remember that eugenics was a super popular quote, science of the times. So in the early 20th century, we used to have state fairs in the United States of America, and we used to judge babies based on their hair color, eye color, who was the most beautiful baby. We would we would give prizes to what we thought was the genetically superior child.
0: I mean, that's that the United the Miss, States. Isn't that the Miss America contest? I mean, don't we still kind of do <laughs> elements of that? I mean, is that Bachelor, The Bachelor? Yes. You want me to say? I mean, like, isn't that what the whole. Like, this, this is where my whole story started. I mean, my I'm first women's studies like, class. I
1: watched a whole season of The Bachelor. Oh, I talked God about bless the you. Women. That would,
0: that's my purgatory. I just want you, like, like, it, like, <laughs> they're like, when I think of hell, I think of me watching The Bachelor for all of eternity. I'm sorry. Yeah. To, like, yeah. like, for me, because well, I just, it could, it stands. I'm sorry, with listeners love the show, but I just think it makes such a mockery <laughs> of like love and it confuses affection and attraction and competition and celebrity. Oh, absolutely. And it just, I'm sorry.
1: And to say, sorry, no, I'm no, no, I kind of love your soapbox. The only reason why I'm not going <laughs> for this is I know we have a lot to talk about, but here's the thing I will say to you to kind of connect this for you. So don't let me forget to come back to the eugenics piece, but I do want to say please, what you're just saying is Margaret Singer started out as a socialist. Yes. She got so tired of these like isms, socialism, this other thing, that other thing, communism, that she just wanted to help women. She sees women. I want to help them no matter where they are. OK, so we have women in Japan that are writing her letters. She's traveling out to Japan. We have women all across different areas of Europe. We've men and women asking her questions, actually. And she wants she wants
0: to help them. Um it's just so sad. I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's I just, know. I know. What's so sad about it is that like, the, here's yeah. the opportunity for the church to provide good answers. This is you, my point. You know, sorry. and so when the church yes. is silent about these things and has yes. been silent and is late to the party, people are going to search Rue <laughs> for answers, whatever the bot is mm-hmm. that Planned Parenthood has now, or Margaret Sanger yes. for answers, and they're going to The only reason answers. why adolescent
1: men and women in the Catholic Church are asking questions from Rue is because they don't know who else to go and ask questions yeah.
3: to. That's That's
1: just the reality. Unfortunately, that's it. Like, I don't think that they're giving the right answers, but I will say at least you want to have the conversation and you're trying to find a means to do it. And so that again, there's always hope. That's the whole point of this podcast, right? Is that we still have opportunities. So let's not, let's not go there yet. But, but I do want to say, so with the eugenics eugenics piece, piece. this, this one piece that I want to say is. What I what I feel very strongly about in my research is that Margaret Singer, she started out as a socialist. She moved toward this individualism. Her argument, if you want bullet points, listeners, this is this is it. Her ultimate end goal was freedom. Freedom for her would come through science. Science was the integral piece. That was the key. That was birth control, the pill specifically became for what she called the pivot of civilization. Because for her, in that time period, based on the science and a misunderstanding, erroneous data, the ways that we weren't quite correct in our understanding, they thought that poverty was a genetic correlation, mm. right? They thought that insanity, like all of these other things, were, or uh, you know, someone who's a criminal that was a genetic predisposition. And so she was working within this this very fast moving stream with a bunch of other people from around the world who were all clapping for her. And they were like, you're right, Margaret, you're right. You want to help us in this cause? We want to help you in your cause. This is the perfect tool for us to help each other. Mm. And all, all I want all I bring that up to say is this is, again, not to condone or to applaud or to say she was right. But it's to say Margaret Sanger wouldn't be someone we're talking about in this con- in this in this conversation or someone I focus my research on unless there were a lot of people around the world including very powerful people, Mm -hmm. the president of the United States or Helen Keller, who has supported her work or Albert Einstein, who's like, you know, I I can't, I can't send you money for this conference because I'm not quite sure I know enough about birth control, but what you're doing to help prevent overpopulation is admirable, right? Like there's, these are big people that are supporting her. So, so I'm not saying again, to say that she picked the right way. What I'm saying is, is it's part of a very big story that as a culture We were moving in such a direction that we started to associate and claim that science said, oh, these kinds of, quote, people based on science are better, or these kinds of, quote, people based on science were worse. And ultimately, though that helped her argument, um, I really think it just comes down to she wanted women to have control because she thought that was the only way they would be able to be free. And though I think it's hard for people to understand I mean, we have to admit there's a lot of women right now that are where they are because they use birth control and they didn't have children. And so the professional, like, I hate to say this, but it's like the, the paradigm that we live in, it's hard to look back and fully understand it, but it does not mean it was the right way. But the fact that we're getting closer and closer to like, oh, let's have equality of salary amongst the sexes. Like, okay, yeah, good thing. But that, that could not have even been a conversation on the table if women couldn't even go to college or get these professional jobs. And then not be the only one at home carrying the responsibility, right, right of
0: the children. That's right. So it's,
1: it's like we're caught up in this stream of, so she died before Roe versus Wade. Would she have been applauding for it? I don't actually know the answer to that. Do I think she would have leaned more in the direction? Sure. But I I actually, I think she was just so darn gung-ho about getting this ideal contraceptive. Mm-hmm. And she really thought it would be possible. And she died before She died right after she died in 1966. So the pill had come out, it had been approved, but she, I don't even think Margaret herself could have imagined the fruits of where her work is now,
2: Probably not. but
1: the conversation, this is, this is the important piece that I will say. The reason why I'm I'm never going to say she's a horrible person. I never want to speak about her again. I think she's a human being who was trying to do something. Her original intent was to help women. And that was good. And she went into some wacky directions, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I really just think that Margaret Sanger, as a woman, saw a need, and she desperately wanted to help women.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she believed her God became science.
0: Yes, because so, it was
1: fact and it was evidence-based, and that's where she ended up. And
0: and so this is where we are in our culture. So he, so here we go. Okay, so to see the need, it's important. Responding to the need is good, and even her response to it isn't far off education is good freedom mm. women's freedom is right but that's where she gets wrong is that her understanding of what human freedom is is not in fact what's fully yes. in accordance with what human freedom is so that is where she begins to to go off in terms of i wondering wanting freedom but not properly understanding what freedom is and so then having that misunderstanding of what human freedom actually is is what then leads to dissolution of controlling or really sterilization, personal sterilization of, of or suppression of, of your reproductive cycle as the means towards achieving you know, the freedom that you desire. Hey, everybody, this is Dr. Mari Sakas. I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Sarah Denny to encourage you to check us out at faithinmarriage.org. 2022 is coming up around the corner. We have a full list of marriage retreats available for you there. So if you want to come, you and your spouse want to take a weekend getaway to be able to break free from the noise and the chaos of daily life and just need a moment to reconnect with God and reconnect with each other, well, we have wonderful marriage retreats available for you. So please check us out on faithandmarriage.org. Having said that, I'm gonna just giving you a little lab here, Sarah. This is this is just this is just for you, Wait. okay? So, <laughs> how does JP2 come years later and give us da-da. a better understanding of what human freedom actually is?
1: Okay, so I think, just gonna be honest, I think the Holy Spirit's really cool. Oh wow! That, think, that, I'm gonna put yeah. that on
0: a bumper sticker. The Holy Spirit is actually <laughs> the Spirit's really, really cool. cool. It's
1: really cool. And if you look at history and you start to read it and you line up timelines of things, mm-hmm. you start to see, wow, whenever there is something in the culture that's challenging, you may not see it right away, but there's this pendulum swing that's starting in some like, for instance, some hidden little village in Poland, what? right? Crazy. The birth of John Paul II. Again. <laughs> I know. So Margaret Sanger, her contemporary would have been John Paul II's mom, mm-hmm. who is a great example of a woman who if Margaret Sanger had found her, she was very sick in her pregnancies. And her pregnancy with John Paul II would have been something that I think Margaret Sanger would have advised, like don't have another child because it, it could endanger your life. And just so the listeners know, Margaret Sanger's mother died after uh, I want to say her mother had 11 children. Her mother had gotten tuberculosis. Each pregnancy made it worse. And so that's a, that's a part of her story that is important that we can't forget. Right. So John Paul II's mother obviously had him praise God. Mm -hmm. And, he grew up in a time where he was just this young man that desired. If well, I, she died one when he word was I a kid,
0: could, also, right?
1: He would have been forty-six when she died. Yes.
0: When who died, Margaret Sanger? Margaret Sanger. No, no, no JP Tuzo. Oh, I'm sorry.
1: about his mother. Yeah, yeah he was young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was really, really young. Um, so, forgive me, I didn't understand your question. Um, so, okay. he's growing up. He's he's exposed to the arts. And there's something he's attracted to, and that something is truth. And he realizes that truth has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. But the gift of his wisdom and his desire and his love, his charity for his fellow man, no matter the religious denomination or anything, race, creed, whatever, was that love is truth. And truth is that each human person is created with, with dignity. And so this is this is the, the catching point. This is the foundation of my entire work, is that for Margaret Sanger... Freedom is the ultimate end. That is the end goal. Because then if a woman is free, then anything she does will lead to her happiness. That's Margaret Singer's argument. And it it ended up becoming, and I would argue in a way that just sort of danced into this ridiculous sort of utopia Mm -hmm. world that doesn't exist of sex and pleasure and yada yada. As a
0: communist, she would want that. She would argue for some type of utopia. Well, and
1: so this is the interesting thing. Yeah, I did want to say, I'm glad you said that, is that I think when she she teetered into this individualism, sort of going against like her social socialistic roots or like communist roots and things like that. But I'm like, what ends up happening is if you think about what the, if you think about how many women take the birth control pill, if you want to talk about the grand collective, hmm. think about chemically what we're doing. We go from every single woman is unique in her cycle mm-hmm. to let me chemically manipulate to you all look the same. And if you look at it on a graph, this is just a graph. If you look at the healthy cycling of a woman's hormones, there's it it's like this, I think it's beautiful. I mean it's me, but this this beautiful like ebb and flow. It's an up and down, and that is healthy. If you look at a woman on the oral contraceptive pill, you want to know what happens to the ebb and flow, flatlined. Wow. Literally flatlined. So then I would say that's where it's like her roots, they come out screaming, whether or not she realized that or sees that. But I was very convicted of that as I finished up my research. Is that Margaret Singer ends up in her desire for women to have the freedom as individual women and this equality? And so then for her, it was the ultimate happiness. She actually is the very one who gives them a, quote, band-aid that makes every single woman the same. Mm. And that eliminates the potential for creativity. And that word's really important. So, to lead into John Paul II.
0: Crazy, Sarah. This is crazy. I know. Stop I'm dropping a, a lot so of bombs. Good. I know. It's like- <laughs> I'm keeping up. I promise I am. I mean, it's just you're you're blowing my mind. It's <laughs> oh it's, my gosh! it's well, so beautiful. But it's so good because it just seems, you know, they say they, you know, everybody talks about the, you know, the 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 road to hell is paved with good intentions. I mean, it's yes. just it, you just see it that it's like it, it. The opposite ends up happening, which is the, the irony. Yes. That's what you're saying is that in the quest for freedom, it ends up being in it ends up being that it it negates that. You know, the quest for 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 uh, individual, you know, women to be able to choose it, what ends up happening is that in her biology, they all become the same. The same. That's the, that's the, that's the place that's really, um, concerning. So go, So go. Okay.
1: So I want to, I want to circles back to that quote I said to me is the theme of this work, but remember this podcast is called always hope. So here's the hope Connected to the reality, we must always live our reality. That's where freedom lies. But in Genesis three, again, it does say, "Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." So this is why my image the whole time I've been writing has been of Margaret Singer and John Paul II drinking coffee. What I mean is, is that I was sitting there reading, and all I wanted to do reading Margaret Singer was say, "But this is why you're wrong. But this is why you're wrong. But this is where you go off." And I really felt not because I'm holy or special or anything. It's just the image in my mind was. John Paul II was annoying me because he wasn't saying anything. I was like, what are you doing? You got to say something because mm-hmm. I don't know what to say. You know a lot more than I do. And how am I supposed to tell her that she's wrong? Mm-hmm. And I feel like it was just a very clear lesson. And true dialogue requires, forgive my being so frank, that you shut up and listen. Wow. Y'all, we have to listen. Because if you were listening to me, preparing for how you were going to tell me that I'm wrong, and you're going to put me back in my place, or you're going to like, take my argument and prove all my points in some like really heady way, you have failed in the first call, which is your vocation to love. I don't have to be Margaret Sanger's best friend, but what John Paul II had the capacity to do, and this is the thing is that they didn't have the opportunity. Their timelines didn't match up in that that way. But what I see is that his entire life's work is a response to Margaret Sanger's life work, Mm. not because he agrees with every point, but I just feel that he could sit at the table with her, even when she was spewing some venom, Hmm. some real like harsh points and attacking. And he could look at her and say, Margaret, there's certain things he would say, Margaret, you're right. He would say, Margaret, women do have to carry the burden of responsibility when it comes to pregnancy and motherhood. Margaret, you're right. Women should with their husbands have to consider the size of their family. That is an important thing. Margaret, you're right. That women have suffered at the hands of men and that perhaps at different times, like men have taken advantage of women. Men have skewed their call to use their strength in a way that serves, that their call is to give self-gift in such a way that it invites woman to submit herself to him. And he would say, Margaret, I, I, in fact, I understand and see why as a woman, you would want to take that pain and that anger, which is just in some experiences, and let it fester into bitterness, where then you say, Mm-mm, I don't need you. I will do this by myself. Because I can't trust you to be responsible for me. And that is where John Paul II would throw the bridge. He would say, Margaret, I hear you. I understand you. And I do think this is a problem. I do think that women need a space, even within the church, to talk about the fact that their lives are good. Their femininity is good. And yes, it involves motherhood. But if they are boxed into motherhood in such a way that I act as if they don't have any creative gifts for the world at large, as if their lay vocation is only that one thing, then I am denying the power of God or the gift that he has instilled in woman. And that is not what God has called us to do. And then from there, he would say, but Margaret, can I speak now? Can I tell you what I think? And he would say, Margaret, I I do think freedom is extremely important, but here's the two main points he would make. Number one, as a human person, we are free. It is within us. He would say, Margaret, the reality is that what you want is a good thing. You want freedom for woman, but you're looking outside of woman. You're looking at science to give to you externally to take and ingest a pill that then I am free. When in fact, he would argue freedom, though, is something within you. And in fact, Margaret, you're settling because you're not going through it to the end goal. The end goal, he says, is Margaret, it's, it's not freedom. The end goal is that freedom exists for the sake of something very important, the human vocation. Freedom exists for the sake of love. Hmm. And he would say that woman, in fact, is called first to be bride before she's called to be mother, meaning he knows that God, the father created woman in the order of love and that her vocation, yes, she's called to give herself as a gift. Yes, the human being can only find themselves their sincere gifts of self. But he's saying that's only just and right and true. If woman is first able to receive love, yes, from God, but also within marriage from the man himself. And he says that man owes a special debt to woman, not only within the sexual act, but in the whole idea of parenthood and family, and he says that she in fact has a particular right to man's tenderness because of what she offers for him in and through the gift of her body. So he would say, first, freedom exists for the sake of love. Second, you cannot divorce freedom from truth. What Margaret was doing, and she again wasn't alone in this, is that philosophy, this whole metaphysical context, all these good things, the objectivity, extremely important, right? We know that. John Paul II, instead of running from the subjectivity and the influence of trying to understand people from the inside, right? Phenomenology. He said, wait, this is great. This is just, he sees a human person as this prism. He's like, oh, there's another facet. That's amazing. Let's not be afraid of it. It can complement what we already know. So he studies these things. He goes deep into Max Shaler and understands values. And he even looks at Immanuel Kant. He's like, okay, the categorical imperative, like I can't, just use a person as a means to an end and he takes in the context of sexual love. It's essentially, he says I'm in love with human love because he realizes that that's the way that man and woman who reflect the creator to all of creation, like that is our vocation. And he says, but the difference is, and so this is one of my favorite works from him, which makes me sound like an absolute nerd. I don't even get most of it, but I think it's profound, right? So he releases, when is the pill approved by the FDA? 1960. Mm -hmm when does he publish his work love and responsibility 1960 you want to read the best thing i've ever encountered on sexual ethics that i think is the best marriage preparation for the church i'm like just give this to people to read it's the final chapter of love Mm -hmm. and responsibility which is called sexology and ethics Mm -hmm. and i'm telling you audience not that i recommend you go read all margaret Sanger stuff i did that for you but if you take her book happiness in marriage which she wrote to married couples And you take his book, Love and Responsibility, and look at that last chapter, Sexology and Ethics. Know what you're going to see? 80% of it, at least, they say the exact same thing. And what do they say there? They say that we have to come to understand that man is called to be responsible because physiologically he is constituted in a completely different way than woman. So his arousal, his experience of the sexual act, all these things, different. Not in a way that says that man's a problem. But in a way that invites me, and I constantly, both of them say, "Man, you must be responsible." And if you can't constantly expect from woman to respond to you, who is physiologically constituted in a very different way, and you expect her to respond to you without any awareness or appreciation for—I don't know—she's different, her mind's different, her body's different, her feelings are different. Maybe she doesn't want to. Maybe she doesn't feel good. All these other things. If you just go by your emotions, your affective responses. You become a brute, basically. The brutish attitude will make her resent you. And then she will say no more and more and more. And you can see how that can explode, right, within marriage. But the point is that within this last chapter, which John Paul II, again, is arguing that Margaret Singer agrees with is man must be responsible in his love. And that woman has a right to man's tenderness. But to, to close out that decade, which the 60s, we all talk about the 60s, and we're like, oh, my gosh, it's crazy. It was all horrible. And I'm like, except here's the hope. You want to know what else came out of the 60s? (laughs) The acting person. I don't recommend that for the average reader. I get it. I I sound like such a nerd. I try. But let me tell you why. I think it's so great. (laughs) I'm
0: grateful that you're smarter than me. (laughs) It took
1: me a while. No, I don't know about that. But So this is what the acting person says. It says much more than this, but here, I'm going to go for it. In relation to this conversation, it says that the human person, we can see two kinds of human action. One is something happens in man. I'll explain that in a second. Two is man acts. The first one, we say something happens in man, if we specifically look at it through the sexual sphere, is think about sexual urges or sexual arousal. It happens to you. Especially, can you imagine educating young men? Like, this isn't an evil. This isn't a bad. It's a natural part of your biology. It's a part of your body. That's important for them to know, right? That in itself, that's not where the human person is most fully evidenced. John Paul II argues, but when we really see Humanity come out when we see the human person from within really shine is man acts, meaning sexual urges and sexual impulses happen to me, happen to you, happen to each person. But the sexual act is something I choose, you choose. Each person has the freedom to choose in and through their will, hmm. whether or not they will engage in. And so that means then that between the experience of attraction and the ultimate consummation of love in the sexual act, We have this spectrum of human experience, right? That is vast, manifold, colorful, all over the place. And yet he would say, Margaret, but we're still free. And while she argues that freedom is going to come from outside, Mm. he would say, wait, hold on, let's go deeper. And that's where that subjective experience he would say is so important is that he says from within the human person, man and woman, the task of a lifetime is the task of personal integration. What integration does is it's the task that allows you. So, imagine, right, each person, he calls it the suppositum, which is like your being, meaning I'm not just my consciousness. I'm not just my body. I'm not just my, I'm, it's my whole being is one, right? He says from this place, this is where you're able to, cons- like from within you, you realize I have this attraction. I have this desire. I have this thing. And then instead of divorcing freedom from truth, you say, aha, But in this moment, in relation to this person, what is truth? Not from Margaret's perspective, where when freedom is divorced from truth, then my conscience becomes the arbiter of norms and my conscience becomes the source of truth. And it's completely dependent upon what I believe or feel or desire in that moment. Instead, for John Paul II, it's my conscience is important, but I must understand what is objective truth in this moment. And he says, freedom can only be lived within the limits of reality. So it's not my idealized, he says, if we get caught up in this unwarranted idealism, idealism within freedom, then we lose ourselves. We're no longer free because we have divorced ourselves from objectivity, from objective truth, right? When instead he says, no, but what does truth call you to in this moment? And he admits, he says, and sometimes what it demands of you is things that you would rather not want to do. But that's the capacity of the human person that completely distinguishes us from the animal kingdom. We are we are animals in a biological sense, but we are rational, we are human, right? So that that is how we are made in the image of likeness of God. That is where our likeness comes from, is that, oh, but here in this moment where my body is screaming one thing, my desires are screaming one thing, and it doesn't mean they're bad, it means they're human. Mm-hmm. I must wed that with truth. And only when I do that, am I truly free because then at the end of the day, who is the one who is able to govern and master me? Me, not the pill, but me, not the man, right? But me as a woman, I, he says, a woman who knows her own value, that is a woman capable of giving herself as a gift, because that's also a woman capable of demanding responsibility from the man to whom is asking for the gift. I realize I just went for
0: a while, and like, I don't even fire, know how to but... respond to everything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm like, I just let you yeah. talk because you were cruising, <laughs> you were flowing, Sarah. You just, you just crushed that out of the park. I mean, you're just so beautiful in terms of. The, the the imagery was so visceral to me in terms of just like imagining John Paul II having this conversation with Margaret saying, Gosh, it's
1: a beautiful and, thing. And, and, can I and can I add one? We'll keep going.
0: No, just speaking to her, like the way that you said in terms of yes, 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 and here's where this really needs to go. Yes. And and I think that is the type of dialogue that we need to engage in. Is that we say yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Of course, there's problems here, but 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 here's where that proposed solution. Ultimately, falls short. So, freedom, yes, but the type of freedom you're proposing, or the type of means to that freedom, of is is both erroneous. That freedom doesn't exist for mm-hmm. the sake of us just to be able to achieve happiness or to do whatever we want. Freedom exists for a particular context so that we can be free to love, because love, at the end, is is the supreme human virtue, not mm-hmm. any of the others that we. They're all good. Kindness is good tolerance is good uh, these are all good virtues to acquire in life but they all must be freedom is good but they're all at the service of something more and that the supreme mm-hmm. virtue is 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 love because god of course is love and we are made in his image and likeness in desire and holiness is contingent on our capacity to receive and to then give love in all contexts mm-hmm. not just in the sexual sphere as we've been talking about exactly. so, so so freely here but you're going to yeah. say something else
1: well, I was just going to say, who oh, I got real fired up. You so got fired up, right now, girl. I was like, the you just, you
0: just keep going. <laughs> just keep going, Sarah. Preach oh, my it.
1: gosh. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for the <laughs> me talk. I'm so excited right now. But so here's here's the thing. I, I, if you could ask me, well, what are you most excited about in your research your project? So, you know, like apparently you're supposed to propose something that's like original. Sure. And every time I think I'm sure. original Mario, I'm like, oh, man, someone already said that. It's, but hey. this is my... Quo this lab, is my right? quote, Ecclesiastes:
0: "Nothing new under the sun." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Praise
1: fine. God! Here we are. Thanks for more humility. <laughs> but um, no. So, so this is what got me super fired up, and this is this is from my work with women in the last 15 years, even since I was in high school. All the conversations I've had, whether I'm in, you know, I'm helping women in crisis pregnancies, I'm counseling them, whether I'm teaching women about their cycles, where I'm I'm teaching in the high school classroom, or presenting on a college campus, you know, on a mission trip, whatever. It comes down to this, literally every conversation I've had, is going to come down to this issue. So the reason why I'm talking so much about love and responsibility and why I kind of am obsessed with it is that John Paul II takes it a next step So, Margaret Sanger thinks there needs to be an education in sex. John Paul II thinks there needs to be an education in sex. And he says that very clearly, he says that adolescent men and women should not think that their sexuality or their sexual organs are some mysterious part of them that they cannot understand or even like broach or or figure out in some way. He said, this makes them be afraid of it. This is what can lead actually to compulsions. This is what can lead them to think that there's an impurity. Instead, he's like, they need a frank, appropriately time, but a biological education
3: mm-hmm.
1: on the nature of their bodies. So I, I hold that piece, which is important, which I think some people don't even realize it is so necessary or they might be too afraid to go there because of the things you've talked about. But then you hold that intention with his next step is because his sex education from a human level, this is just for him, this is reason. It's not even just a Catholic vision. It's, it's because we have accessibility to reason as human beings, but it's an education of love. So he talks about it from a philosophical foundation of woman can be educated that in a particular way of her femininity, she exhibits more of what he calls a sentimentality. Her emotions come alive in a particular way, This sort of where the color is like enlivened. And she has to realize in order within those attractions, am I, am I attracted to and falling in love with the man that is? Or am I attracted and falling in love with the idea of the man that is in front of me, of what I want him to be because of my desire for closeness and protection and union and love? And all those things are good desires. But again, what is reality? For man, he's saying his truth, right? So it always has to be balanced in truth is, is, is this man, are you, are you looking at the woman in front of you and desiring her in the fullness of her person as a woman? Or are you looking at her? He calls it sensuality is mm-hmm. more where the man is drawn as it doesn't mean that they both don't have the other. It's that this seems to be the predominant, but he says, are you just attracted to the sexual value? And even well, certainly one of the in today's I'm kind of
0: context, it goes the other way. I mean, the, women are using men as much as men are using women. Like, uh, the, the, oh, the, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, in today's context, no, no. But the, I know, but the, I know the distinguishing when he, factor when he's writing it, of course, we're going back when. I know, what, I know what you're saying. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, but I would, but I would say, back up, a second, the distinguishing factor. I'm saying more. So think of it as women are more. It's the emotional draw right, of right, the right, value right. of the person and the emotions. For the man, it's more the physical draw, the values of the person and what that gives me. And yes, for men, that's also an emotional, and that's also a physical. Yeah, 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 yeah,
3: yeah.
1: But I, so yeah, I'm focusing more on the, the emotions and the physical. And so for him, he's telling men, they like, you need to then your education of love involves, you need to sublimate the, the attraction physically of the value of the woman and say that sexual value. Are you in love with the sexual value, the physical property of that woman, or are you in love with the woman? In as much as the woman has to say, am I in love with the feeling I get from the man or the protection or the emotion, mm-hmm. or am I in love with the man? Mm-hmm. That's what I mean.
3: Right. Got so it.
1: so then in that space, yeah, thank you for bringing that clarification. But in that space, then awesome. here's my moment of here's my moment where I'm like,
3: oh, my God.
0: Gosh. Oh gosh, here we go. OK, you
3: ready? No, ready
1: I'm, not ready, I'm, <laughs> I'm not ready, Sarah. Oh, I'm not
0: ready. Let me breathe for a second. Holy cow. God, have mercy. <laughs> Give it to me.
1: So he says in the acting person, he talks about the different ways that we can know ourselves. But he says that there's there's this part of us because of our bodies. He calls it the somato vegetative part of us, meaning. I don't really think about my stomach unless it hurts, right? Unless my stomach is in pain, I'm not sitting here at work thinking, ah, oh, I have a stomach, you know, unless I'm like studying biology. But most normal people who are not like me are gonna not really think about their stomach. What he's saying to me, I take it to the next step with the knowledge that we now have a fertility awareness because he talks about the fact that our experiences of our bodies. Can our bodies right speak this language? They reveal us to ourselves. And the more we know ourselves, the more we are able to possess ourselves. That's the process of integration. And the more I then possess and govern myself through that work of integration, the more free I am to give a gift of myself. Mm-hmm. So here's the crux. Woman is different than man, especially in the nature of her fertility. Every single woman on the planet in a very particular way has an access to this somato vegetative part of her that for most people, we're not thinking about our bodies, but for women, because of how our fertility naturally functions, we are aware of our bodies in a way that men are not, especially related to our fertility, because there's pain involved, because there's bleeding involved, because there's biomarkers such as cervical mucus involved. And so what I would say, taking John Paul II's thought a step further and basically integrating it and why I think it's the education piece, is that if you want to help a woman to grow in self-awareness, to grow in self-governance, to grow in self-possession, if we also want adolescents to know that their bodies and their sexuality is not just this thing that's a mystery, but it's something they can access and understand, then how about we start teaching all adolescent women fertility awareness models. Yes, that's preventative medicine. Yes, it can help with PCOS, endometriosis, low progesterone, severe PMS. The list goes on, I could tell you. We could talk about that in another podcast. But even more so, authentic freedom of woman is empowerment through truth. And the truth about a woman's body has a lot to tell her about her personhood and about her vocation. And even so, In what he calls the rich emotional life of woman's affectivity, which he never says is a bad thing. He thinks it's a beautiful thing. But he knows that as a woman, she has the capacity through her reason to to know her emotions and to control herself, even in the midst of strong emotions. And so, as a woman learns her cycle, oh my gosh, as a woman, here I'm learning my progesterone drops because that's how it works before I start my new period. Well, during the progesterone drop, I feel depressed or I want to eat the whole world, or I have severe migraines, but especially for adolescent women, can I tell you there's, there's two contrasting ways we're looking at it. There's one way let's put them on the pill. And do you know the increased risk for suicide and suicidal ideation because of the birth control pill? That's one of the side effects or fertility awareness. Now they're in a lot of pain. Again, we're not condemning women for taking it for what is claimed to be medicinal reasons because people don't know any better, But with that pain, if we can go to the source of the problem, help relieve that, and also support them in their hormones fluctuating, then perhaps, right, all these women we have on antidepressants, some of them genuinely, yes, they need it for different biochemical reasons. Some of them, the biochemical reasoning that's underneath it includes their progesterone. And if we could educate them on that and integrate that, then like their emotional lives, can you imagine? It doesn't. Nothing again. I'm not even giving you the solution. I'm not the person saying here's one solution, but I'm saying this would be a really great, helpful thing to start.
0: Yes. No. Thank you. Beautiful. So, because you answered the question that I was already thinking is okay. So somebody could be listening to this and, and thinking, yeah, that's great in terms of interior understanding of self. Freedom is 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 meant for love. I have to grow in an interior understanding of my motivations, of my sexual urges, and the space between an urge. That acts on me versus me acting on that urge, which leads mm-hmm, towards morality, mm-hmm. immorality if it's if it's out of the context of marriage, or 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 chastity if it's in the context of marriage in terms of genuine love and responsibility for the person. So I hear somebody, I can hear somebody saying, "Sure, you can do all of that, but can't you mm-hmm. do all of that while being on the pill?"
1: Great question. It's a great question. I have an answer. You want me to answer?
0: I think you did answer it, but 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 go ahead and say it.
1: Can I go a little deeper? Please. Okay. So this is this is what I, no, believe, hold on a second. I believe. Make sure
0: I heard your okay. answer, okay? So th- I was thinking that go question ten minutes ago, and then you answered it, and then you can go deeper. How about that? All right. So maybe make sure I, I heard. Yeah, it yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Which is which is that you are saying no? Because by definition, the pill negates that. What did you say, somatic vegetative kind of information? That that yes. that that recognition of of that awareness of the interior space, which is part of what you that it's. It's that interior connection with the body, that integration that's needed, education that's needed for one to be able to gain true human freedom that by taking the pill completely suppresses a, a woman's fertility, which prevents her from then being able to even have access to that information, which she needs for her to be able to achieve her human freedom.
3: Yes.
1: Did
0: I hear that right?
3: You
1: did.
0: Okay. So take now, it further. For
3: those,
1: <laughs> So the, for those listeners that understandably so are getting restless and frustrated and- I hear you. I hear what these, what you're thinking as a listener, because here's the thing. The reality is such that there's a lot of women on the pill because people they trust told them they need to take it or because they're in severe pain every single month. Right. And they're not supposed to be, there's something going on. And this is not a condemnation of any of these women right. or the medical professionals that I do believe most of them are doing the best they can with what they've got and what they know. But here's my argument. That is number one, everything we've talked about in this podcast is that in an attempt to create the ultimate solution, We already know from this podcast and the last one, but the birth control pill is not the ultimate solution. What if there is a better way, right? I cannot sit here and say that because of this one thing, then a woman is suddenly, I I believe that it's an attempt to sort of manipulate her body in such a way that it, it unfortunately removes some of that opportunity. But do I think that humanity and human life and society and the world as it exists still provides women such an opportunity for personal growth and like choices. And does woman still need to integrate her emotions and all these things, even if she's on the pill? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm not taking that away from Mm -hmm. any woman. And that's, that needs to be very clear, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm glad you asked that question, but I would say this. John Paul II's argument. And I think about some of the women, and this isn't for every woman, but I think about some of the women that I've told me. So clients of mine who have been on the pill come off of it. And their emotional waves are sort of a shocker sometimes to them. They're like, I forgot about this part where like, I'm really fine. And then I'm like crying over a cup of spilled milk kind of a thing, you know? And I'm like, I know, isn't it lovely being a woman? And, and look, in our culture, we're, we're taught to like talk about our cycles. There's this, there's this language of like disgust. There's this language of like the burden. There's this language of like, as if it really is the enemy and that's where Fertility Awareness, I think, is this invitation piece. And, mm-hmm. and that step further that I wanted to take is this, is that John Paul II, he's so, I've, I've never been more convicted of his love for woman mm-hmm. than I am through this work. Because I think he's really actually, in many ways, he wants to defend woman from man in the sense that because he knows our experiences on this side of the fall and on this side of heaven, and the propensity he says to man that you have to introduce into your desire for possessing. You have to introduce an awareness and appreciation for the value of the woman in front of you. You have to, with your will, choose to do that, right? And that, this is not a robotic thing, like, and now I must remember that. Like, no, stop it. But it's like each person has their creative right way to do it. I call it man and woman's personalist project, meaning. What he's saying about freedom is that like my call and vocation as a woman, Mario, praise God, there's certain truths that I believe in strongly, but the lovely thing is that gets me so fired up in this work is that the way that I respond to my call as a woman, my vocation as a woman and my desire for being a wife and being a mother, and even now spiritually already living that out Mm -hmm. is such that as Sarah Denny, I am free to respond to that. And even in the next 10 seconds, I get to respond to that in whatever way I desire. Like in relation to truth, I'm free. Meaning I get to be creative with my students, how I teach one truth. I get to be creative. When I go home, I get to be creative in conversation with a friend. I get to be creative. So how I live on my femininity. The church does not want to box me in. John Paul II does not want to box me in. Women are not meant to be boxed in. Motherhood is not supposed to be this thing that is one way. So all these stupid, sorry, but stupid Catholic wars about breastfeeding or not breastfeeding or homeschooling or not homeschooling, or are you making your kids clothes, you're not making your kids clothes do you deliver naturally or vaginally, or you have a C-section. I'm like, oh my gosh, calm down. You're an amazing human being. Keep choosing love. But in this place of intimacy, in this place where sex is involved, what John Paul II is saying is this, and this is where I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. I would say he's looking at man and he's looking at woman and he's saying, hey, I know the temptation. I know why you would want to use something like contraception. Totally understand. I know the burdens that you're carrying. I know the responsibility you desire for your other children. I know the responsibility you feel for the people that are helping you in this way or that way. I know the responsibility you feel to your spouse, the responsibility you feel in your career. He says, but for you, woman, the way that you were made as a woman, which is different than man, even including your biology, almost especially including that, When you cut yourself off from that potential which is within you, your reproductive potential, which is very different than man, and in fact demands more of you than it does him in many ways, he says, when you cut yourself off from that, you are divorcing yourself. You're you're cutting yourself almost like from within. He says the constitutive dimension of your person is being shattered, and you are then therefore obliterating this rich field and arena for creativity and how you live out your femininity, because what it does is it's almost like I would argue John Paul II is less concerned with motherhood in the question of contraception. And he's more concerned with how woman becomes mother. Does she do it in a way that her subjectivity is respected where man looks at her as an equal, yet respects her in the differences and respects her reproductive potential and respects that you woman are different than I am Which means that your potential for motherhood is something, if I love you, I must take responsibility for now, in this moment, whatever that means. And he's saying for woman, he's saying, you woman are a great value. You are a pearl of great price. Do not throw your pearls before swine. In your body, which speaks a powerful language, you are free to choose what to do with it. You are free to go this route if you want to. And I understand, but I argue and beg you to consider a different way that says that you are not biologically determined to your motherhood, that you are free, and that if you stay true to your person, which includes this potential for motherhood, which demands a creativity between spouses and how they love each other in the most intimate of ways, that is when you will not only discover the deepest of freedoms, but you will discover authentic love because your whole being will be wrapped up in it, but it will also be the very being that demands when you look at a man to say this is who i am all of me or none of me because that is what i'm worth
0: <laughs> sarah
2: sorry hey cow. i'm not sorry
0: i'm what just excited heck? i'm like
3: oh my come
1: god come on sarah
0: <laughs> jesus and oh my gosh i don't even
1: that's where the hope is, is that, now. That's because that's where
0: the hope is. Spectacular because what you just unveiled is is, and this is what JP2 does so beautifully, and thank you for just exposing that, is is the 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 limitless potential of the human person. And yes. so everything you spoke about certainly was in the context of the sexual arena, but but it goes into All of our actions, all of our everything, you know, that's, this is a pet peeve of mine. Also, when we think about like discernment, sometimes we, we get so passive with discernment that it's like, I got to pray and then I got to do this and I got to do this. And we forget that's like, Hey, God gave you free will. You know, and if you're integrating and growing as a person, just freaking do it. That's what he wants. Actually, That's, that's the that's the parable of the talents. And so so when it comes to we are at our best when we are exercising the fullness of our human creativity. And so what we're speaking about, certainly here in a particular way. So I don't want to get off on all that. It's a whole nother episode. We're ready. We're ready an hour and a half deep into this one. Holy I know. I'm
2: just throwing.
0: You know, so, so like, but thinking that like, in particular when it comes to the sexual arena, this is again, what, what, why he, why his, his critique is, is so severe against, you know, understanding, but also severe with regards to, to looking at something like, a, like contraception as being the only answer. Is that because mm-hmm. exactly like you said, it, 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 the two cannot coexist, you know, and when we settle again, we recognize that there's a problem. We don't want the perfect get in the way, of the good. I understand that. But sometimes when we settle on an answer or propose an answer that we think is right. But because it's skewed philosophically in terms of its understanding of, of, of the human person, in the end, the long term, we can see the fruits. A hundred years later, we can see the error more clearly in Margaret Singer's proposals. She couldn't mm-hmm. see it at the time, like you said. You no. know, you don't know, even when she died in what sixty seven, is what you said. Sixty six. Sixty six. Yeah. That she wouldn't be able to see now, fifty years later or fifty five years later, how much, you know, her 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 message. Um, where where the ends of it would go, but but we can now we can trace it, we can map that out, mm-hmm. and we have to then say, okay, well, what what do we choose? Do we choose the the better option? You know, and the because but the hard part is is that what John Paul II is proposing. It's hard. It's hard. It's so it's so hard. Hard. It's so hard. So hard. It's so hard. Mm-hmm. It's so hard. I mean,
1: I will be honest with you. Sometimes this is true. I w- I would have to literally pray. I mean, that's the only way I got through this dissertation for many reasons, but I had to pray because I was in tears because I was looking face to face with how hard it really is. And I was like, Jesus, I need you to remind me why, how this demanding call for man and woman is true. Because sometimes deep down, I'd be like, gosh, Lord, I feel like before I tell people the truth, I have to apologize because it's going to be so darn hard. Right. But John Paul II, to, to bring it back to the always hope piece, I will say. If you read the life story of John Paul II, I, I dare anyone to tell me that man didn't suffer, mm. right? He suffered immensely. And yet what he would say is, do not, do not, do not be afraid. Two big things, quotes from him, I'll say as we're talking just now. I, I quote, number one, love responsibility. He said, do not be afraid when love sometimes follows tortuous ways. Grace has the power to make straight the paths of human love. Mm. And in that, I just want to illuminate. I I do not believe that it is practical or real or fair to talk to couples as if here's your linear life telling you not to use the pill, don't use contraception. And then for the next 50 years, as long as you're alive, you're never going to sin. You're never going to fail. You're never going to make a mistake. When in fact, I think it's much more ebbs and flows and they get afraid and they use it and then they regret it and then they confess it. And then they're told a myriad of things in response to that. Who knows? But instead, hey, as the father loves his children... He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. Come back. Mm
3: -hmm. Try
1: again. And this demanding call, it's worth it. And if you fail today, tomorrow's a new day. and We always have the freedom again to begin again, right? But the other thing he would say to young people, kind of what you were just saying before, we're not going to go there too far, but when he was speaking for the homily of Edith Stein for her canonization, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross, he was addressing young people. and He said that, It was time for them to decide. He was like, yes, you weigh the options. I'm paraphrasing. But the quote is, he said, it's time to put your freedom in his good hands. And so I think the reality is that there are a lot of options out there for men and women. And there are particular ones that I would argue in terms of time, investment, a lot of things are way easier. However, because of the information we now have since the birth control pill was released in 1960, these are the two things that I would argue to focus in is that Gregory Pincus, who was the the scientist largely behind the development of the pill. Okay. He wanted to find a way. So now we're kind of scientific here. He wanted to find a way to manipulate the process of mammalian reproduction without some sort of cost or effect right to the physiology of the organism, right? So, in other words, health, which we've talked about, Mario, in 1946, they're changing the definition. It's it's moving towards this more fluid notion, not just of being well, but of well-being. So, imagine the birth control pill fitting into this space of health becomes this myriad of every single way—socially, physically, emotionally, mentally. I want to be well. I want to feel good. I want to be free. And and we look at science as if it's the answer, as if it's our god, as if it has all the power, right? And I would argue that maybe we didn't see it before. I would argue that we didn't know what we now know. But if you're asking me at what cost to the woman, the pill has come emotionally, physically, spiritually, every single aspect of her being, she does indeed pay a cost. She pays a very high price. And in many ways, I would say, the cost is higher to the woman in certain respects than it is to the man. I'm not saying men don't pay a high price. I'm not saying they're not affected, but I'm saying the very essence of womanhood is suffering on a medicinal level, on a scientific level of her biology. And that's flowing into because no organ system is its own. It's not in a vacuum. It's all connected. Her endocrine system's affected, her thyroid's affected, her mind's affected, adolescent brain development, like we talked about, is affected. But then the relations between the sexes, again, going back to. Your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. Now, do I think that there are couples that are incredible, that are contracepting? that the men look at their wives and respect them and value them? Absolutely. In fact, I would argue some of them do more so than some couples that are not contracepting because there's such a legalism and a rigorism and you yourselves, God bless you men, but oh my gosh, do you see your wife? Mm -hmm. Do you see her? You can go to mass. You can go to adoration. You can do all the things. You can go to the conferences. You can quote the books. But all the time that you're spending in the chapel every day, do you go home and give your wife even a fraction of that time and listen to her? Because that is JP2's argument. This is why I would argue the challenge is worth it. This is why. And this is what I'm honestly probably most passionate about. And this is from women of all ages that have shared their hearts with me in the last two and a half years of writing this. Including and especially for Catholic men, God bless you. Your call is incredible and it is good. But in the name of Jesus Christ, He does not call you to have a sort of authority over your husband—I mean, over your wife. Excuse me. This authority that would somehow deny her the richness of her subjectivity and that personalist project I'm talking about—that creativity and how she uses her femininity and how she offers herself as a wife and how she offers herself as a mother. Now she offers her gifts to the world, which could come in so many ways. Maybe she's a stay-at-home mom. Maybe she's a doctor. Maybe she's a teacher. Maybe she's whatever. I get that there's all these traditional values, but the reality is like we do not live in a vacuum. It's not a linear. You say, I do. And then 40 years later, it's this stagnant thing. For some people that works, praise God. But in the reality of this culture, the sort of invitation for men, the authority that men are called to is an authority that looks at your wife and says, hey, you have gifts that I don't have. And it is not a threat to my strength when you are strong. It is something that I too can support just as you support me because it's a mutual submission. And so in coming to know you, woman, as you are, in coming to support you, woman, as you are, in coming to understand, and this is the key, that in a particular way, woman, you have an interior world that is your own, that I could never possess, that only the Lord knows even deeper than you do, right? That if I can come to respect that inner world, I learn how to respect you and the wholeness that you are as a woman. And I realize this is what it means to be equal to you, is that you as a woman hold yourself as a human being in my presence. And it is a gift to encounter you. But if I do not give you a a space to reveal this inner world to me, if I do not give you a space to speak what are you experiencing yes in the sexual act but i'm talking about everything if i do not give you that space as a woman then i myself as a man am subjugating you to my authority in a way that i do rule over you instead of ruling with you because we were entrusted in the garden with the kingdom together and that is how the kingdom will be remade I know. This is like,
3: just, I've just been waiting to
1: talk about all these things for the last two and a half years, I guess, and so they're all coming
0: up. Sarah, I, I, I just have to say, um, in all sincerity, I'm, uh, your work has been worth it and I hope that you can see.
1: I really appreciate that. And
0: I hope that you can all receive well. that in all sincerity. I mean, just talking to you Thank three you. years ago and in between over the years and then now, there is a sharpness to your thought that is hard earned. And it has been, mm. it is the fruit of all the sacrifices that you have made over the last couple of years to read and read and write and read and write and, and dialogue and digest and not go on whatever trips or say yes to whatever other projects, but that you chose this above everything else. Um, thank you for exercising your freedom um, in this way, because the fruits of it are are in are very 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 evident, very very evident.
1: I'm a little speechless because I'm almost gonna cry. But no, but truly, I thank you. It has been the hardest thing I've ever done, and uh, I I can say with all transparency, if I would have known what the heck this would have required of me, I would have said no. And that's God's mercy. And I'm so I, I can say this much easier now, being on almost the other side of it. But it. It is like spiritual labor pains. Mm-hmm. That's what this project has mm-hmm. been for me. It's like I'm trying to deliver a 20-pound baby, which, by the way, is not normal, and it's definitely taken its good old time coming out and uh, making light of it. But truly, to come back to it, I, I cannot thank you enough for both the sincerity of what you just said, but also my respect for you, Mario, and your work. And since you have, in a sense, you have a particular viewpoint of me, and we've been friends for years, but even in this project, and so for that to come from you you know, cause you're in it and you're so close to it. It's like my nose is up the glass, like, like a little girl. And I'm like, sometimes I genuinely, you have an existential crisis. Yep. I mean, I've had a few in this process. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? Well, I I'm like, have I wasted the last six years? That's been a question I've asked often. Mm-hmm. And um no, I don't think I have, but the these are no. the moments that remind me like, no, this too has eternal value. And I pray. And I hope truly for, For any of the listeners, I just, I I pray and I hope that it can bring life. I I pray that it can bring life, not just to women, but also to men, just, just for the, just a glistening into like an insight into the feminine heart, which I think when we understand the feminine heart, it helps us understand the masculine heart because they just, gosh, they're, they're meant to be so complimentary, you know,
0: that's exactly right. Wow. Okay, Sarah. Well, we got to land this thing. So, so Great. couple of questions here again. If anybody, yeah. anything, I know you're writing this dissertation, but anything you want to plug? Any anything else in terms of? I know you, have, oh my gosh. you had the website before, but I don't know if you're still blogging on that. Probably not. Uh, not.com. Yeah, yeah. I
1: blog every year or two. <laughs> <laughs> Pray for me. I'll ask for prayers, Pray. thing, really. Please. I'm asking the we, Lord to open we want the book. doors to we let want me a know. Book out of this. Well, I would we, love to publish we want a book out of
0: this. Just the wisdom Please. to
1: know where to where yes. my heart. But if I could plug one. Sure. I, I would love to plug one site specifically in, in my work with adolescents. And I, I I believe there's probably a lot of parents listening. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? Practically speaking, and I get it. There is an organization called Natural Womanhood, mm-hmm. naturalwomanhood.com. And they put out articles constantly. Now, this organization is run by a Catholic man, Gerard Mijon. He's from France. He lives in San Antonio with his wife, who I believe is American. I'm not sure she may be French. They got married, weren't living out the church's teachings. Then they decided to live at the church's teachings. And they saw, wow, this is a game changer for our relationship. And so what their desire was, so he worked until a few weeks ago, he worked in a hospital in the psychiatric ward. And so he's seen a lot. I can't remember quite what his his position was, but he's the CEO of natural womanhood. And so his whole mission is we want to bring to women the truth of fertility awareness models as a tool for education, but for every woman. So here's the censure is that we believe in science. I believe in science wholeheartedly. And I believe that the authentic sex education is not science on one extreme or theology on the other. It's let's put them together because you want to know what else is both science and theology and philosophy? The human person, the body and the soul. That's why this works. And so if I could plug anything, natural womanhood, because if you want more information, just science-based, which that's the best bridge to be able to talk to people. Because we can have these dialogues. We really can, but we just see the information. So whether that's effects of you know, side effects of contraception or whether that's options for fertility awareness. So if they have some articles for men, you want to know like, what are the arenas that we can go to for education for younger ones, which hopefully I might be doing some work with them soon on that. Um, that is one website that I would say is highly worth your time. And you can, you can kind of take your time gleaning through that and you can share the articles with people that you really care about and let them digest it on their own as well.
0: Sounds great. Well, we will put a link to that in the show notes. And final question, I usually ask all my first-time guests, but you're a (laughs) second-time guest. But but before I start asking this question, because it was early on, Sarah Denny, what gives you hope?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a great question. Okay, I have an answer for you. So I just started. My current job is I'm teaching at a local high school in New Orleans, and I have all girls. I have all the seniors at this particular high school. The hope that I have is in introducing them, or literally it's the second day of school. So as of this afternoon, right before this podcast, I've seen all the seniors that I will teach. When I look at them and tell them, hey guys, guess what? I'm about to blow your mind. There's some crazy things coming. You don't even know what I'm about to teach you when it comes to scripture and vocation and this understanding of your body and the language it speaks and your biology. The look in their eyes, their hunger for this, their desire for this. And also what I'm very convicted of is their deep capacity readiness, and maturity, and capacity to receive this information, you all it's just the beginning. There is always hope, and there are so many young men and women who, they just want to know, they want to know deep enough that they are willing. It's going to be hard, and some of them want to, they all want to run. We all want to run, right? That's just being human, but there are so many of them, and if you offer them, right, that's what education is. Education reveals To the person that within themselves, they have the tools, they have the strength, they have the possibility to respond to what love demands and not to run from the responsibilities or demands of love. So my hope is in seeing in the eyes of these young women that they know that love is hard and they're willing to stay.
0: Amen wonderful mm-hmm. well, beautiful yeah. okay yeah Sarah Denny thank you so much for this epic podcast that we just did thank you so much for thank you
1: for having since, me thanks for getting me fired up and awesome. letting me just talk <laughs> it's so
0: good it's so good well God bless you in your ministry there at Chappelle and uh, in getting this dissertation done and whatever good stuff that the Lord will will bring on the other side of it so
1: thank you Mario so much and God bless all you listeners as well thank you.
0: All right, man. Well, thanks guys for hanging in there. Those of you who got to this point in the podcast are deserve a gold star. You absolutely do. I hope that it was worth it. It was worth it for me as I was living and experiencing this depth of a conversation. And even as I edited after, I was like, there's not much I can cut or felt like there was much that I needed to cut because I just wanted for you to be able to hear Sarah's passion and her energy and her desire for this topic. So please continue to pray for her and continue to pray for all of us as we just continue to walk through these cultural questions and navigate these discussions about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be in relationship with one another. The church certainly has a wonderful teaching that can guide us through this. And at the end of the day, we have to be people who pray to discern within our own hearts about how God is asking us to live out our human sexuality. So God bless everybody. Be good. Take care.